We've recently been going through the book of John, and so I would like to invite you all to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 45 today, following up the story of Lazarus that we've been going through. Now I'd like to, oh, Kristen is here, so thank you, Kristen, you can uh, take it away. (laughs) John 11, 45 through 57, the word of the Lord. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them... Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, "'What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all?' Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning, Sound City. Good to see you all. My name is Shane. I am also one of the pastors here. Uh, Apparently, I'm the pastor who missed the memo that we were all supposed to be out of the country. Uh, Three of our pastors, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Kyle, and Pastor Doug, are all in Uganda as part of the team that you just saw uh, some pictures of and and heard a little bit about. Uh, But I'm happy to be with here with you today uh, to continue in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We've been working away at the Gospel of John, the book of John, chapter by chapter, passage by passage for quite some time now. And as you guessed by Kristen's reading of the scripture, we're in these final verses of chapter 11, in particular verses 45 through 57, in a sermon entitled, Responding to Lazarus's Raising. But if you're new, or if you haven't been around uh, a lot lately, all that probably means to you is that there's some portion of 11 whole chapters worth of content and context that you've missed so far. So for your sake, and for uh, the sake of any of you who are maybe like me, and it's better for you to hear things a couple times uh, for everything to sink in, then here's a little speed round of what you might have missed to help you out if you haven't been around. So, early in our series, uh, and a few times since then as well, we've visited one passage in particular in John's Gospel that's really helped us keep our bearing throughout the whole series, and that's a couple of verses from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where the Apostle John, who's the human co-author of the book, tells us his thesis for his whole Gospel account. John saying this, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written down in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in these two verses, John gives us just this really super compact and helpful summary of what we've been studying and unpacking together since about this time last last year, actually. 
Uh, And in these two verses, John reminds us that his whole purpose in writing is really to showcase the public signs and miracles done by Jesus in order to convince John's first readers and hearers and us that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, we can have eternal life with God. And we've seen that purpose and thesis of John's show up all throughout the 11 chapters that we've worked through so far, haven't we? We've seen Jesus make it clear time and time again here in John that he is actually God, along with the Father, even telling us of how he was involved with God the Father in the creation of the world. That was back in John chapter 1, if you'll recall. And in these 11 chapters, we've seen sign after sign, miracle after miracle, performed by Jesus to both reveal his divinity and in order to help God's people to see that he is the long-promised Jewish Savior and Messiah who was to come. And all through these chapters as well, as we've looked at these signs of Jesus, as we've witnessed them together, God has shown us Jesus' power over sickness and disease, his power over physical handicap and disfigurement, his power over blindness, his power over creation by turning water into wine, and then by turning five dinner rolls and two sardines into a feast for 5,000 with plenty to spare. And then last week in our study in the middle of chapter 11, we witnessed Jesus raise a dead man with the power of his word after he'd already been dead for four days, showing those original witnesses, John's first readers and hearers, and each of us, Jesus' absolute power, even over death. And that brings us to today, into the final verses of chapter 11, where we'll get to investigate the ways those first witnesses responded to Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the grave. But before we do any of that, let's take a moment and pray together. Lord God, I'm thankful for each one you've brought out this morning uh, for us all to be together as your people. I pray, God, that you would um, change us, that you would teach us from your word, and that uh, we would be marked uh, by your truth, that you would change us through the power of your spirit, that you would give us uh, greater wisdom and knowledge of your word, and that that would be transformative in our lives. We pray your protection over our time, and I pray uh, for me selfishly, Lord, that you would just uh, give me exactly the words that you'd have me speak and give me joy as I gather with your people to talk about you. pray all this, God, through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So let's start with a question. And the question is, what are the most shocking things that you've ever witnessed? So not just memorable things, but kind of shocking things, things that have stuck with you because they surprised you as you witnessed them. I remember uh, just a couple for me. Uh, One of them, I was on my way to seminary, so this is when we lived in Dallas, and I was driving toward downtown around 5.30 in the morning, so it weren't very many people on the road, and there was an 18-wheeler on my right side that was coming by me and was by me for a little while as we are going down the road, and then he moved past me, and as he did, he hit like uh, the little median, the little angled part of one of those medians, And I saw the truck jerk a little bit, and this thing right in front of me laid down. The whole thing turned sideways and slid down about five lanes of traffic going one direction. A big cloud of smoke that I'm enveloped in. I'm having to really slow down. He pops his head out of the top of the cab after it stops. He's okay. But, like, it was this, like, if I would have been next to him when that happened, like, that would have not probably been very good. And it's just one of those things, those surprising, shocking things that's really stuck with me. I remember right where I was. I could tell you all about the surroundings of where we were. Um, I know which exit it was uh, off of Highway 75. 
it sticks with you, right? I remember being on a mission trip in Brazil. I had led a team for us to uh, the favelas in Rio, which is a nice Portuguese word for slums. And uh, they, they say community. And in these communities, we had this, our team was going around and we were working our way through the community. We were talking to people about Jesus. We were asking if they wanted prayer. Several people actually gave their lives to Christ. It was really cool. And we had reached, on, this is like the second or third day there, we'd reached the top of the community. You could kind of overlook down into Rio. It was really pretty. And uh, all of a sudden, this guy walks up, probably about from here to maybe row three or so here. And he just holds up his gun and he just kind of walks by our team with a gun kind of right at our, pointed right at our heads. And then eventually, as he passes by and goes down this hill, he brings his arm back down and, and just goes on his way. But that's stuck with me, right? That's shocking. You're not expecting that. I can tell you right where every member of our team was. I could tell you the ways that I was thinking about how to find help if something happened. Later, we found out this was a drug dealer in the area. But that marked me, right? Like, it stuck with me. It was something that was really shocking. I remember right where I was, even though it was just live TV, I remember right where I was and everything about the moment when the second plane hit the World Trade Center on 9-11 in 2001. I can tell you right where I was, who was around me, what was going on. It just left this imprint, this mark on me, this shocking thing that I experienced. What, what would be some of those experiences in your life? Those shocking, impossible-to-forget moments in your life that just stick with you, that mark you, that leave you different as a result of what you witnessed. Don't you imagine the same would have been true in Jesus' day? Can you imagine what it would have been like to be counted among those firsthand witnesses of Jesus' signs and miracles? Can you imagine the mark that would have left on your life? Can you imagine how you might respond to have watched your friend get sick and die to have then been at his funeral and grieved the loss of that friend, only to have some religious character who was claiming to be God call out to your dead friend, commanding him to come out of the grave and back to life again, and he does it. Can you imagine how you'd have responded to such an experience? Well, that's the situation we find ourselves in as we pick up where we left off last week in these final verses of John 11 with people responding in various ways to this shocking sign and miracle that Jesus had just performed. And as we look at the varied responses of these witnesses to Lazarus being raised, what I would submit to you as our big idea for the sermon today is that responding faithfully to Jesus requires the trusting of God's will over every competing option. Responding faithfully to Jesus requires the trusting of God's will over every competing option. That's the central proposition for the sermon. That's the big idea for this morning. And we're going to see that big idea take shape as we investigate four primary responses that we'll see in our passage today in response to this sign of Jesus. Response number one, seeing and believing. Response number two that we'll see is going and telling. Response number three is worrying and fear. Response number four is selfishness and expediency. And then, in addition to these four responses, as a little bonus, we're also going to discover one accidental prophecy along the way as well. And so that's our outline. That's a little of where we're headed this morning. But it all starts with the unfolding of the work that we've been watching Jesus do over these last few weeks. Starting with our two sisters, Mary and Martha, who send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus, whom Jesus knew and loved, was sick and dying. And instead of going to attend to his friend right away, as we might expect Jesus to do, he takes this strange step of delaying and staying where he was for an additional two days. 
We see that here in John eleven six. Then a bit later, we see Jesus declare to those around him, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you might believe. Don't you imagine, even for his young disciples that believed in him, but for the others within earshot as well, don't you imagine they'd have been a little bit confused by this? Yeah, he died, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Eventually, they reach the tomb of Lazarus some four days after he's died, and Jesus tells them, take the stone away that was covering the entrance to the tomb. That's uh, in verse 39. And then just a few moments later, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Then as we enter into today's text, starting with verse 45, we find the first of the four responses to this sign of Jesus. Verse 45 saying, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So seeing and believing. Seeing and believing. That's the first four responses that we're going to discover today in our passage. And this is why Jesus had delayed and allowed Lazarus to die, right? So that he could show his power over death and so that many might come to see this and believe in him. Now, at first reading... Uh, we might think, as we look at verse 45, that it's saying something like, upon seeing the sign, some of the Jews that came with Mary believed, and some of them did not. But there's this little possessive construction here in the Greek, suggesting it might be better for us to understand this verse as saying something more like this. Many Jews, those Jews who had come with Mary, those who had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. In other words, our best understanding of this passage suggests that this sign of Jesus was wildly successful in its evangelistic intent, and that nearly all of those who came and saw actually believed in him. And while seeing and believing is the response most of us would probably assume that we'd have had if we were there, that's not by a long shot the only response that we're going to see in our passage today. So let's keep going and see what else we can discover, picking up in verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So here we discover response number two, going and telling. Going and telling. Sound City, you think this is a good response or a bad response? The going and telling. I hear bad. Anybody think good? Yeah. So it's actually up for debate from a scholarly perspective. Are those who are going and telling, doing so out of this overflow of hearts marked with faith in Jesus in light of the miracle they've just seen? Or is this a faithless and wicked response of those who have already set their hearts on the destruction of Jesus? I think it's probably easier to assume that upon seeing this miracle, some of them may have run and tattled on Jesus, maybe to try and gain favor with the Jewish leaders by providing them this bit of intel. But if nearly all of those who came with Mary, who saw Jesus call Lazarus from death to life, believed, then it's equally likely that these were new believers just doing what Jesus calls each of us and empowers each of us to do once we believe in him. Remember, these witnesses have just seen a a man, many of them new, die and be raised from the dead by Jesus. This one who was rumored to be the long-awaited Messiah and Savior. They'd just seen Jesus flex a little bit in his divinity and show his power even over death. So maybe what we're seeing here is that they've come to be Jesus' witnesses to a lost and doubting and watching world. That's what we see in Acts 1-8, where we're told that would happen. 
maybe what we're seeing here is that these who are going and telling, they've become Jesus' ambassadors through whom God is making salvation in Jesus known amongst the nations. That's what Paul records would happen in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Or maybe they are just tattling on Jesus after all. And if that's the case, and they're doing so, they're playing right into God's plan that's about to come to fruition on the cross in these next few chapters of John's gospel. Okay, so we saw response number one, seeing and believing. Response number two, going and telling. And now in verses 47 and 48, we see response number three, worrying and fear. Picking up now in verse 47. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's a handful of things for us to unpack here. First, what's this council that these chief priests and Pharisees are part of? Well, the Greek word here is a seldom used word in the New Testament. It's synedrion, which sounds an awful lot like Sanhedrin. And that's because the council that we're talking about here is the Sanhedrin, which is a word that maybe some of you have heard of. And the Sanhedrin was a Jewish tribunal whose members enjoyed great wealth and influence and far-reaching authority over all things related to the Jewish people and their community. But what we have to remember also here is that their rule only existed under and with the permission of the far greater authority of the Roman Empire. If you want to find out more about how this ruling system functioned, you can Google the word Pax Ramona, and you can find out a little bit more. Now, the Sanhedrin was made up of two main groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with the chief priests mentioned here in 47 being part of that latter group, the Sadducees. And on this occasion of this gathered council, the main item on the agenda, not surprisingly, was Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead. And as the council gathers, we see response number three of worry and fear and of panic on full display. And their opening statement here in verse 47 is emphatic. And the council member who's speaking here isn't asking a question so much as he's saying to the council, why are we doing nothing when this man performs sign after sign and miracle after miracle? Did you notice how he calls Jesus this man here? Such contempt here for Jesus and the threat he represents to the power and authority of this council that he can't even stomach to say his name. He just calls him this man. It's also interesting to notice what they say about the signs Jesus had been performing, isn't it? You notice anything different or unexpected about the way they respond to that? They don't deny that the signs are happening, do they? They don't doubt their authenticity either. And yet belief as a response is nowhere to be found. It's shocking a little bit, isn't it? I feel like I'd be swayed by seeing miracles and signs like this, don't you? Or maybe, maybe it's not shocking at all. Maybe you can think of a time or times in your life when you've been so busy and paralyzed with worry and fear that it's caused your thinking and doing in life to go pretty far astray as well. Does that resonate with anybody? We'll circle back to that one. So the council meeting has started. And a councilman has communicated the worry and fear of the group, declaring, why are we doing nothing? And then he continues in verse 48 saying, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place 
and our nation. So there's this delicate peace going on between the Jewish people and Rome as part of this Pax Romana, where the Jewish people are generally left alone to do their thing so long as it doesn't get in the way of the Roman Empire's rule over them. And the fear and worry on display here, then, is that if more and more people see these signs of Jesus and come to believe in him as the Messiah and as the Savior, then this man, this Jesus, might seek to set himself up as a worldly king, which will then stir the military might of Rome, who would then crush this revolt against their rule, resulting in the destruction of their place, which is surely a reference to the Jewish temple, and the destruction of their nation, resulting in the scattering and death of many Jewish people. But maybe more so, than any legitimate fear of losing their whole nation here, it would seem that this council is likely far more concerned about their loss of worldly position and influence and their loss of worldly wealth and power. And from where we sit, from where we exist on the biblical timeline, it's hard to watch them miss it about Jesus, isn't it? It's hard to watch the hearts of the Sanhedrin so struck with worry and fear and clinging to temporary concerns of this world when the freedom and blessing, the security and salvation that they're longing for is all right in front of them in Jesus. They're missing the proverbial forest for the trees, aren't they? They're missing the eternal perspective and instead seeing only the worries and fears of today. Sound City, I wonder if we might be prone to such things at times. But the council members don't stop with a response of worry and fear. So let's keep going, picking up now at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. So Caiaphas, who'd been this high priest for over a dozen years now at this point, and a very senior and influential member within the Sanhedrin, enters the scene. And with zero zero diplomacy, obviously, Caiaphas barks at them, you know nothing at all. And then once he has their attention, he goes further in verse 50, offering them a solution for all their woes about Jesus Caiaphas continues, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So what's Caiaphas suggesting here? What's he suggesting? Behind this thin veil of patriotism as his rationale, Caiaphas is suggesting nothing less than a judicial, council-approved murder of Jesus so that the wealth and power and influence of the council could be maintained. Now, we might be tempted to say, from their twisted perspective, maybe this seems like a logical move for their council to make. One man's life in exchange for a whole nation, if we can take them at their word that that's their heart and intention. But to consider Caiaphas' proposal as anything except murderous and horrific neglects the fact that we're, we're not dealing with irreligious people here, are we? We're not dealing with irreligious people. We're talking about Jewish leaders who claim to have some measure of faith in God. And so to consider Caiaphas' proposal neglects the truth of God concerning the innocent from passages like Proverbs 17, which reminds us that he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Regarding Caiaphas' sinful reasoning, John Calvin said this, Now, it is wicked to consult about guarding against dangers which we cannot avoid unless we choose to depart from the right path. Our first inquiry ought to be, what does God command and choose to be done? 
By this we ought to abide, whatever may be the consequence to ourselves. Yet such are the schemes of those who do not truly and sincerely fear God. What is right and lawful gives them no concern, for their whole attention is directed to present consequences. It's good, right? Caiaphas is suggested an all-too-tempting solution to the troubles brought about by this Jesus who was growing in popularity and influence. He's told the council a sweet-sounding lie without ever actually mentioning by name the murderous acts that would be required for this plan to be lived out. And he's teaching the other council members that when the stakes are high enough, their desired ends do truly justify whatever means are necessary. Another helpful quote from Charles Spurgeon on this. He said this of Caiaphas's plan. That was his advice. Let's kill this man. Let him be put to death. Not that he deserves it, but that it is expedient that it should be. And this is the way that governors and kings have been accustomed to think. Not is it right, but is it expedient. Response number four to Jesus' miracle Caiaphas' response to Jesus goes well beyond the initial fear and worry expressed by the other councilmen, doesn't it? Yeah. Caiaphas' response to Jesus is one of the selfishness and one of expediency. But I'm sure, as many of you noticed, there's another layer to Caiaphas' blasphemous words here in verse 50, isn't there? And that's where verse 51 and 52 take us next. The Apostle John saying here, But Caiaphas didn't say these things of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So the Apostle John here is reinterpreting what Caiaphas had said in the prior verse, isn't he? John's saying here in verse 51 that there's another influence at play, giving additional meaning to what Caiaphas says in verse 50. But what does John mean when he says that Caiaphas didn't say this of his own accord? Well, what he's telling us here is that beyond the surface meaning of Caiaphas' words to his council members, he was also, surely and truly, uttering a very real prophecy about one man dying for God's people, just not in the way that Caiaphas had intended. John tells us here as well about why Caiaphas would have been considered a prophet in all this. More specifically, he tells us that it's by nature of Caiaphas' being the high priest during this time that God has chosen to use him as a prophet. And wouldn't it be like our God to do such a thing? To take the man filling the role of high priest, a role used often by God in the days of the Old Testament to communicate his wisdom and his truth to his people, to now do so once again in his good timing. And Caiaphas would be used by God in this way to utter an accidental prophecy, if you will. His tongue guided, says Calvin, by a higher impulse because God intended that he should make known by his mouth something higher than what he had conceived in his mind. That's good. Another scholar explained it this way. In stating his purpose so as to win the consent of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas so formulates his words that he unconsciously states also God's purpose. This, John says, was not accidental, but due to God. The best formulation that Caiaphas could find to meet the situation he faced was the very formulation God wanted him to find for a purpose of which Caiaphas never thought. They want to slay Jesus for their purpose. God will let them slay Jesus 
for his purpose. Finally then, the Apostle John goes on to explain in verse 52 that the outcome of this prophecy extends far beyond the Jewish nation which Caiaphas spoke of. To include all of those who God has chosen to draw to himself as his people. To include all of those who would say they had seen and believed. So, taken all together then, what has the Apostle John helped us discover in our look at this accidental prophecy? He's helped us to discover and see the good news of the gospel, hasn't he? In Caiaphas' words, now reinterpreted by John as being prophetic, we have Jesus dying a vicarious and substitutionary death as Savior for the atoning benefit of all of God's scattered children who now, through Jesus, are made into one people for all eternity. This is the good news of the gospel, Sound City. And after this declaration of the gospel truth about Jesus, John tells us next in verse 53 that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And then in verse 54 and following, we're told Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews. We're told that he went and spent time with his disciples in private during these days. We're told that people were wondering greatly if Jesus would show up to the Passover festival that was now at hand. And we're told that the Sanhedrin intended to arrest Jesus if he did show his face. And so, as we close out John chapter 11 together, and as Jesus moves ever closer to his substitutionary death for our sins, what points of application can we draw out of what we've seen today to apply it to our daily lives? Well, We started this morning with this big idea that responding faithfully to Jesus requires the trusting of God's will over every competing option. And then as we walked through today's passage together, we looked at four different responses recorded by the Apostle John and inspired by God for us to learn from. We saw response number one, seeing and believing. And as we watched nearly every one of those on the scene as Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave, saw and believed in Jesus. And the application for response number one, for those of us in here who are, by God's grace, Christians, is to be encouraged. Be encouraged that we have eternal life because of Jesus. Be encouraged that, according to John 10, we cannot, cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. Sound City, is this good news to anyone this morning? But there's still another application for response one for us to consider And it's for those of us who are in here this morning who would say that you have never claimed to have seen and believed. For those of you who have never believed in Jesus. And the application for you is an opportunity to do that very thing. To see and believe. Today, for the very first time, put faith in the reality that Jesus' death on the cross was for you. He died for you. To pay the price and penalty for your sins. So that your broken relationship with God could be restored. And so that you could, starting today, have the sure hope and promise of eternal life with God and with his people. Non-Christians in the room, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because if you do, then you're not a non-Christian anymore. And if you took this step of seeing and believing in Jesus today for the first time, then please don't leave without talking to one of us. Let us celebrate that with you and give us an opportunity to maybe point out a next step or two that would be helpful for you today. Okay, so 
that's some thoughts on applying response number one to our lives. Next, we discovered in response two, going and telling, which involved some witnesses to Jesus' raising of Lazarus who were either going and tattling on Jesus in order to gain favor with local leaders or who were perhaps going and telling others of the good news that the Messiah has come, bringing salvation to all who believe in him. And if we assume the best for a moment and assume that these witnesses of Jesus' miracle with Lazarus were living out their calling as Jesus' witnesses and as his ambassadors, then for those of us who claim to have seen and believed, the application for us is this. To answer this question, who are the people in your life that God has given you connection with and relationship with that he's asking you to go and tell about him? So for many of you, there are names that just popped into your head. That's the way the Spirit works. So those names that just popped into your head, uh, will you actually go and tell them about Jesus? And you guys, this doesn't have to be weird. We've talked about this in here before. Like, pray that God would reveal to you those that he's given you enough connection and relationship with to speak truth about him to. And then ask, for, ask him for natural opportunities to engage in conversation. It doesn't have to be weird. So just start there. Pray for natural opportunities to talk to those that God has brought to mind, that you're to go and tell. Next, we discovered response number three, worrying and fear. And here in verses 47 and 48, we saw a people so caught up in their own daily circumstances that they could in no way recognize who Jesus was, and they could in no way live beyond their present fears. And the application question for us to ask ourselves in this is, in what ways do you worry and fear sinfully, where you should be trusting God's will and plan for you far more than you currently are. Now, I don't know everyone in this room, but I know a lot of you. I've spent time with many of you. And I know that this is a big one for many in this room. That worry and fear are a big deal for many in this room. And yet, how do we reconcile our propensity, myself included at times, to be anxious and to worry about the troubles of today? When the scriptures so regularly and repeatedly remind us that our Father in heaven knows our needs, that he will provide for us, and that we're not to be anxious about anything in this life. How do we reconcile that? There's no easy answers to that. But one little piece of homework I can give you if you want a place to start, another spot in scripture to start from, you could go to Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, and you can dig around a little there. Maybe pray about what you find there as to start. You talk to your, the folks in your community group. Talk to one of us. And again, the application questions on this point that we each need to consider are in what ways do we worry and fear sinfully where we should be trusting God's will and plan for us far more than we currently are? And then secondly, what are we willing to do about it? Next, we discovered response number four, selfishness and expediency. And here in verses 49 and 50, we looked at a leader more motivated by selfish concern than by what is right and by what God's will reveals about what's truly best. We saw how Caiaphas was able to rationalize almost any expedient means to accomplish the ends that he had in mind, which were his power and wealth, his position and influence, and the quasi-freedom that he had settled for at the expense of peace with God. And the application questions for us to consider on this point are these. In what areas of life do you reason 
that the ends justify the means when the means are at odds with biblical truth. Does that make sense? In what areas of life do you reason that the ends justify the means in our actions and our choices when the means involved are at odds with biblical truth? And then secondly, in what ways are you so focused on pleasure and freedom from discomfort in this life that you fail to live day to day with eternity in view? A couple questions for us to think about. Pastor and author, theologian John Piper once asked a similar set of questions that I'm going to borrow and rephrase a bit for our purposes here. So reflect on these with me, if you would. Would you be satisfied to go to heaven, have everybody there in your family that you want there, have all the health and restoration of your prime, and everything you disliked about yourself fixed, and every enjoyable activity and recreation you've ever dreamed available to you, and have infinite resources of money to spend, would you be satisfied if God weren't there? If you were free from every nagging temptation to sin in all the ways you're most predisposed to sin, if you were totally fulfilled emotionally and relationally, if you felt loved and safe and encouraged by your friends and spouse and family and coworkers, would you be satisfied without Jesus? In a sense, these are the questions that Caiaphas is answering yes to. And they're the questions that we're saying yes to as well. Anytime we choose to join Caiaphas in trading God's will and what he says is right for the lesser and temporary rewards of this life. Caiaphas is so earthly focused that he's willing to bargain at all. Yet for those of us who are Christians, we're called not to a pursuit of selfish expediency in this life, but instead to lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely to us And to instead run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. For those of us who are Christians, we're called not to this myopic decision-making based on the temporary of this life, but to seeking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And to put to death, therefore, all that is earthly in each one of us. Sound City, this is the race that we have been called by God to run. And this calling ought to infect our every word, thought, deed, and motive every day of our lives, right? So how are we doing with that? How are you doing with that? Now, none of us will answer this call perfectly And there's grace and there's forgiveness in Christ when we fail. And there's even help through the power of the Holy Spirit for us to accomplish the the degree to which we can accomplish in this life. But as we think about Caiaphas's godless response, if we count ourselves as those who have seen and believed in Jesus, then we cannot fail to, from time to time, ask ourselves and one another questions like the ones I mentioned. In what areas of life do we wrongly reason that the ends justify the means when the means in question are at odds with biblical truth? And secondly, in what ways are we focused on pleasure and freedom from discomfort in this life that we fail to live day to day with eternity in view? Okay, one more quote from Calvin. Calvin summed all this up really well when he said, To what a pitch of wickedness do men proceed, who destitute of the fear of God form their plans rather from the judgment of their flesh than from the word of God. 
and who confidently believe that they will derive advantage from that which is not permitted by the author of every blessing. That's good. Church family, responding faithfully to Jesus requires the trusting of God's will over every competing option. Do we believe that? Responding faithfully to Jesus requires the trusting of God's will over every competing option. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for our time together this morning as your gathered people. And we pray that we would not be a people who are willing to compromise your good and fruitful calling on our lives for the sake of earthly temporary gain. Instead, Father, I pray that we would be a people marked and changed by the signs of Jesus that we've witnessed in your perfect word. And that as a result, our lives would be governed by your will more than our own. And that you would daily lift our gaze beyond our present concerns. And that you would in everything turn our hearts toward you, the author of every blessing. And we pray all of this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Shane. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then... So eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In a moment here, I'm going to pray. Um, As you came in here to the auditorium, you would have received the Lord's Supper out of the basket. After I'm done praying, go ahead and pray yourself and partake in the Lord's Supper. After that, stand and celebrate with us. Father, Thank you so much for your body that was broken, your blood that was shed, Father. You, you sent Jesus, Jesus who lived the, the perfect life that we couldn't live, but yet he paid the ultimate price that we deserve to pay, Father. I pray that each and every one of us, you would stir our hearts in this, this response we have to Jesus, the same response that Pastor Shane outlined in, in, in the verse today, Father, in the verses. I, I just pray that people... Somebody who doesn't know you, their response would be to be saved, Father. would be for your, you to soften their heart and for them to, to feel your love for the first time, Father. For other people, Father, I, just, I pray that they, that they take the gift that you give them. And, and because of what you have done for them, Father, that they get to go out and tell other people and live that life, Father. I also pray for people that maybe choose the wrong path after they know your truth, Father. I pray that you would convict, lovingly convict them, Father, to come back to you, Father.
I thank you so much for everything you have done for us. Amen.